I would ask that you please turn in your Bibles now to Numbers chapter 32. The book of Numbers is one of the most underrated and, in my opinion, enjoyable books in the Old Testament. It contains some of the most powerful and incredible stories. There are uprisings and rebellions and spies and intrigue, and it contains some of the best gospel allusions in the Old Testament, like the water from the rock or the serpent on the pole or that time that Aaron stood between the living and the dead as the plague moved through the people. I love the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers chronicles the bulk of the 40-year period that the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. It, It begins after they have passed through the Red Sea, and it concludes as they are getting ready to enter into the promised land. Numbers is also a book of, well, you guessed it, Numbers. It's a book which contains two censuses of the people of Israel. One of them is before everyone disobeyed and rebelled and were told, your bodies will drop dead here in the wilderness. And one of them happens years later after that generation has passed away. The first census was taken all the way back in Numbers chapter 1. And 38 years later in chapter 26, we see that now all of those people have died. In chapter 27, Moses calls the people of God uh, to send, uh, calls upon God to send Someone to lead Israel so that they will not wander like a sheep without a shepherd. He knows that he is not permitted to enter in, so he asks the Lord for who will be next. And God raises up Joshua and declares him to be the successor. Then we come to chapter 31. The people of Israel are at the banks of the Jordan River, but before they can arrive into the promised land, God has a mission for them on that side of the river. Blocking their path to the Jordan are the Midianite people. And in Numbers chapter 31, verses 1 and 2, it's, the Lord said to Moses, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. After that, you will be gathered to your people. So the people of Israel commit, to the, Midian, commit the Midianites to destruction, and many cities were conquered, many people were killed, including the infamous person Balaam from the Old Testament. And now that the land was cleared... Two of the tribes, Gad and Reuben, begin looking around at all of that conquered land on that side of the Jordan, and they decide, well, this looks pretty nice. I kind of like this place. It's beautiful. There's pasture lands for flocks. There's nobody living here because we just killed them all. There's plenty of wide open spaces. This would be a great place to settle down. So now we come to our passage for this morning. Follow along as I begin reading in Numbers chapter 32. And I will pause a couple of times just to offer some running commentary. This is the word of the Lord. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. And they saw the land of Jazir and the land of Gilead. And behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to to Eleazar the priest and to the chiefs of the congregation, Ataroth, Dibon, Jazir, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elielah, Sabam, Nebu, and Baon, the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. So the two tribes here, what are they doing? They're requesting not to cross over across the Jordan, and Moses is about to respond with a scathing rebuke and give them a really important history lesson. Verse 6, 
But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this when I sent them to Gadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eschol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled on that day. And he swore, saying, Surely none of the men who came up out of Israel from twenty years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. None except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness forty years, until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. Now remember, he's not talking about some ancient history. He's talking about their parents. Verse 14, And behold, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness and you will destroy all this people. You can kind of tell here, Moses is hot. He is angry. He is warning them not to cause this generation to be buried in the wilderness while their children wander around for another 40 years in the desert. So now the people of Gad and Reuben respond with a very different attitude. Verse 16, Then they came near to him and said, We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones. But we will take up arms, ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan to the east. Now before they said that, they did not want to cross the Jordan, and now they are offering to lead the charge. Notice before they said, look, we don't want to go over there at all. And now they're like, we'll go in front of them. We will actually make sure, we will ensure that each one of them gets their land. They have changed their tune. They have given their word. And so now what's going to happen is Moses is going to respond with a very solemn warning. So Moses said to them, If you will do this, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord for war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then after that you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel." And this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord. And be sure your sin will find Build cities for your little ones and folds for your sheep. And do what you have promised. And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben said to Moses, Your servants will do as my Lord commands. Let's ask the Lord's blessing over the reading and preaching of his word today. O sovereign God of heaven, Lord of the universe, we thank you that 
You are not only God over the big things, the universal things, the planetary movements and the governments that you set up. But Lord, you are also sovereign over every aspect of our lives, over every single molecule that moves. I praise you, Lord, that you are a God who cares about things that we might perceive as small or insignificant. I praise you, Lord, for giving us your word and allowing us now the opportunity to worship you by proclaiming and by hearing today. And by your spirit, Lord, I pray that you will convict all of us if there is any sin that exists in us. Graciously, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to the glorious nature of your Son and that you would mold us into his image. Lord, I pray that just as Jesus said that he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, that you would help us, cause us to give our lives as well. Not in sacrifice at the cross, but by laying down of our own desires so that we might serve one another well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today what we're going to do is examine this passage through three main points. We're going to look at the danger of doing nothing, the preserving power of rebuke, and the extreme nature of the gospel. Now, just a heads up, the majority, the bulk of what we're going to focus on is in point number one, the danger of doing nothing. In this passage, we see what is probably the most quoted verse in the entire book of Numbers. Be sure your sin will find you out. Now, I grew up in a Christian home, and I can count the times that I can't count the times, rather, that I was often told this by my mother. This would happen, you know, if you're a parent, this happens where the children get into a scuff of some kind, and the parent is in the other room, and they walk in, and there's literally no way they could figure out who it is that's actually at fault. And in those moments, especially when there's something that gets broken or something that gets damaged, and nobody wants to fess up to it, the response that I would receive as a child was, be sure your sin will find you out. What was the sin that Moses is talking about? That's a really important question for us to ask. Charles Spurgeon refers to this as the sin of doing nothing. The tribes of Gad and the tribe of Reuben, well, they have requested to take the easy way out. They see that this land is good, so why keep fighting? I like this space. Let's just settle down. The tribes of Gad and Reuben have said, let's just end the trip here. Uh, There's a term that I have heard a great deal over the last decade or so. It's a term that Americans tend to use quite a bit. It is the term min-maxing. Have you heard of this term? Min-maxing. It is minimum effort, maximum results. I actually one time was listening to a radio station, back when I used to listen to the radio, and there was a person who said, min-maxing is the American dream. Put in as little as you can, get as much out that you can. Well, the Bible has a lot to say against that kind of a mindset. People don't change that much, and this kind of mindset still that they had is pretty much a fixture of the way that we operate. Let's just take the easy way out. This is what the two tribes of Gad and Reuben want. Minimum effort, maximum result. And there is much instruction for us in this chapter. So let's examine the sin of doing nothing, and we're going to see its devastating effects. The sin of doing nothing is insidious, inconsiderate, invasive, and injurious. And we're going to take a few moments to consider each of those four attributes and see how they operate in terms of the sin of doing nothing. First, that sin is insidious. In other words, it's something that sneaks in easily and unaware. It's something that you can't easily see in your own heart. If you look in the mirror, you're not going to notice it. If you're like me at all, you read the original request of these two tribes, and 
you probably don't see any malice. You don't see any conniving. It doesn't sound to me like they're attempting to hurt anyone. They're just looking around and saying, wow, this looks pretty nice. Let's just stay here. They probably have no idea that their sin, their plan is sinful at all. This is often how we operate in terms of the sin of doing nothing. We rationalize to ourselves and we talk ourselves into situations and into scenarios and sins that we should not be doing, but we talk ourselves into doing nothing. Gad and Reuben were probably thinking along the lines of, well, look, God's always gone before us. He's going to go before them. We're only 90,000 people after all, and not all of us are even fighters. So he conquered these lands. He's going to help them conquer Canaan as well. And besides, that means that they're going to get more land anyway. If we just decide to set up our camp here and start building our houses here, then they'll get more stuff on the other side of the river. And who else is going to go over there and take these grasslands? If we don't do it, then it's just going to be some other tribe that's going to show up, and we're going to have a borderland dispute all of the time for the rest of our children's futures, so we better go ahead and fill these houses that the Midianites left behind. Beware insidious sins, sins that allow you allow into your life because you are not being guarded. We so easily rationalized, and we try, we try to justify our sin. Gad and Reuben were about to desert their brothers, and they were going to do so without a second thought. So let me ask you, are there ways that you have sinfully justified deserting any kind of role in serving the congregation at this church? Allow me to give a couple of illustrations of how I have seen this over the years. Um, sometimes people will say, well, look, we're just going to miss church for like the next eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks because my son has soccer or football or baseball or some other sport that takes up Sunday mornings. And they will say, we're just going to take 8 or 10 or 12 weeks off, uh, and then if they make the playoffs, maybe just a little bit longer, because we really need this for my son. It's important for him to develop. Beware the sin of doing nothing. Or maybe they say, I can't join a community group because then I'm going to miss watching my favorite sports team play on television. I have to keep up with it because I use my knowledge of sports to share the gospel with my coworkers. So if I don't have that, then what's my end to share the gospel with people? I've heard that excuse on multiple occasions. Beware the sin of doing nothing. And to be clear, just attending is the lowest bar of service. I'm going to pick up more hours at work, some people say. Because listen, if I, if I pick up more hours, that's good but you need to know it's going to take me away on Sundays. I'm not going to be able to be here anymore because my job is going to require that the time that I pick up will just happen to be on Sunday mornings. And I know that that's going to take away from my time here, but I can give more if I make more. So that's a good thing, right? Beware the sin of doing nothing. And here's the one that I have heard many, many times. I'm actually going to give you a real conversation that I had with somebody many years ago. Uh, this person had been at the church where I was serving at that congregation for at least two years, maybe closer to three, and he had a conversation and said, listen, I've asked maybe like a dozen times, and I'm almost embarrassed to come to you now and to ask you to serve because every time I've ever come, you've always said no, but I'm going to come at you again one more time and say, look, you're very gifted. You're, you're really qualified at serving in this way. I would love for you to use your gift in, in the body by serving and this person said, listen, I've always said no for the same exact reason. I'm just really hurt by my previous church, and I just need time to heal. And I said, well, listen, I understand 
I genuinely understand by experience what it looks like to be hurt by a church that does things poorly. I know, I know from experience what it's like uh, to have your heart broken by somebody that you thought you could trust. But how long is it going to take, brother? And he had been there, I, I would say, at least two years, but it's probably much closer to three. And he said, well, let's just call it indefinite. Beware the sin of doing nothing. He was using legitimate sin that had taken place against him as an excuse to never again serve in the church. And to my knowledge, and this is more than a decade ago, to my knowledge, this person has still never served in any capacity at all. Gad and Reuben thought that they had a great reason to do nothing. But Moses points out that they have a responsibility to serve their brothers. This sin, the sin of doing nothing, is a sin that is insidious. It sneaks in. It's also inconsiderate, meaning that it is selfish. In verse 6, you can see that Moses is calling them out on the carpet as being selfish, and he says, Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? That is a powerful line. That is an incredibly powerful question. Twelve tribes fought for it, and now just you two, you're going to get it? Moses might have well have called them out as a group of lazy, indolent cowards, and by, by asking this question, he's saying, you should go fight. Unfortunately, this attitude is alive and well in the church. I'm thankful for my salvation. I'm thankful for my church. I'm thankful for what God has done for me. I'm thankful that I get to hear the word. But you know what? I don't really feel as though I should be the one putting in any effort to serve. They say that 20% of the people do 80% of the work in just about any organization and that is not a good thing, and that is not what it should look like in the church of God. Two of the greatest idols that I see in the church today are the idols of comfort and entertainment. We should search our heart. Do you prioritize serving your brothers and sisters over making yourself comfortable and entertained? We learn in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, that we, like Christ, should care for the needs of others in the church when he says, Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, please hear me out. I'm not just preaching to you. I am preaching to me. I am convicted here, and there are ways I need forgiveness in this area. Can you truly say along with Paul that you are willing to spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel? The church is here to worship the Lord, and the church is here to edify the saints, and the church is here to evangelize the lost. God cares about how you spend your time. He cares about how you use your talents. And he has gifted you, each of you, in some way that he might not have gifted anyone else in this congregation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is speaking to a church who's had this big argument about the different gifts that the Lord has given and different arguments about how those gifts should be viewed and used within the body. And he explains that every part of the body is necessary and that God has brilliantly designed our churches with gifts that are designed to work together for his glory. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 15 through 20, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would still not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. 
Brothers and sisters, we must not be selfish with our gifts. We must use them and hone them and honor God with them. Let us not be inconsiderate. The sin of doing nothing is also, unfortunately, invasive. Moses reminds Gad and Reuben that the last time the ten spies had gone in, uh, the, the twelve spies had gone in, ten of them came back rather with a bad report. And that resulted in the entire congregation being filled with fear. Ten people, ten people came back and said, We shouldn't go, it's dangerous. And then two million people got scared. Now 90,000 people are saying, let's not cross the Jordan. Do you realize what damage that could do? Uh, Years ago when I moved to Levittown, uh, we had a front yard that I needed to take care of for the first time since I was in high school. And so I was pretty excited. I'm going to get to, you know, take care of a yard, and then my grass wasn't growing very well, and then all of a sudden, there were patches of my grass that began growing really well, and the grass was like a different color, and it was like a bright, light lime green, and I was like, wow, this is really great, until I realized that's not grass, that's a weed, and it was infesting everything, and then I realized it's basically impossible to get rid of it. Weeds spread quickly. The sin of doing nothing also spreads quickly. Moses warns them that this attitude is going to easily spread throughout all of the tribes, just as fear spread through them the last time they were preparing to enter the land. If you pour red food coloring in the corner of a bathtub that is full of water, it is not going to stay in the corner of the bathtub. It is going to spread. The sin of doing nothing was dangerous because it could easily spread to the entire congregation. Do you know that your sin no matter how small you think it is, affects everyone in the church. That's what Paul speaks about when he is writing to the church in, in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a man who has an inappropriate relationship with his father's wife. And he begins talking to the church, and he begins to, he begins to speak negatively about their doing nothing to stop him. Now, let's put ourselves in the shoes of those people. Let's say they're like, okay, listen, he doesn't really attend very often. He's, you know, when he comes, like, great, we'll be nice to him and we'll be friendly. Let's not make a big deal out of this. We've known him for a long time, and there's nothing being done to correct the great evil that is taking place in his bed. And so what's going on here with the church? Paul says that they are doing nothing, and he uses an illustration, an image. He says it's like there's a little bit of leaven that leavens the whole lump. Remember, in the Old Testament... Leaven was always used as a way to speak about sin. And now he says there's a little bit of leaven. That leaven, that image is invisible. It's something that you can't really notice it. Like if you put a little bit of leaven in one lump and no leaven in the other, they look exactly the same until you leave the room and come back an hour later. And then all of a sudden, one of them has mutated. It's completely different than it used to be. And he said, that's what sin is like. It's invisible initially, and then you come back and everything is different. It's distorted. It has now been perverted by this little bit of sin that you left here in the lump. The sin of doing nothing is invasive. It spreads. And we as a body of believers should be radically committed to serving one another. Now you might ask, well, how is my sin of doing nothing going to hurt anyone? Well, here's one way that it can damage them. Uh, 
brings us to our third aspect, that it is injurious. The sin of doing nothing is injurious. How is it injurious? By being discouraging. In verse 7, Moses asks the question, Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? You doing nothing, Gad and Reuben, you doing nothing is going to discourage everyone else. Do you know what is most discouraging to me? It's not the world. It's not, it's not the government. It's not politics. It's not the wars that are taking place around the planet. It's not the bad news that we get from cable television. It's not the bad reports that we get when we check a podcast on the news. I expect the world to act like the world. That's not the thing that discourages me the most. What discourages me more than anything else in my life is when professing believers claim to love Christ and they don't care for his bride at all. They don't care about the church. They say that they love Jesus. They say that they are going to heaven. They say that they are living a life for him, yet they want to do nothing to serve him. Brothers and sisters, there are occasions when somebody who is Part of the body claims that they love Jesus Christ and they will disappear for months at a time. Now, obviously, you are present here today. So perhaps that's you on occasion. I hope not. There are also occasions when people who are claiming to love the Lord are totally comfortable doing nothing. To me, that is discouraging. That is discouraging, and sometimes that's a weakness that I have, that I have to rely on Christ when I get discouraged in those things. But this is a reality of the church. If there are people who are doing nothing, it brings about discouragement to everyone who is doing something. Even something as simple as being present is a major encouragement to the body of Christ. So I want to encourage us to repent of the sin of doing nothing. The Lord is faithful and he's just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. Jesus died for the sin of doing nothing. It is not a hopeless war that we fight. We have faith in Christ who gives grace for this sin. So what is a sign of genuine repentance in this area? It's pretty simple. Do something. Do something. Uh, you, you may say, look, nobody's ever asked me to serve. I've never actually been like that guy who told you uh, just indefinitely. I, I, I'm not going to do anything indefinitely. I, I've never been asked, so I just don't do. Well, let me give you a little insider secret about ministry. Serving in the church does not mean waiting for a position or a title. It doesn't mean waiting for a role to open up that you can then fill. It means having a heart that is willing to spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel, even when nobody ever notices. When I am looking for somebody to serve in a particular role, I look for somebody who is already trying to do it, and who is already attempting to get their foot in the door, and they're like, what can I do? How can I be of use? I just want to do anything. Tell me what I can do. And then I say, all right, give that guy the job. You see dirt, pick up a broom. You see somebody in need, care for them. If you see somebody hurting, take them out for coffee and counsel them in the word. You see somebody needs a regular ride to church, offer it. Even though it's going to take you out of your way, it's going to take gas money, and you're going to spend extra time on the LIE, serve. Go to war, as it were, for your brothers. Ask how you can fight alongside them. Pray for one another. Ask your church leaders in the different areas of ministry if you can serve with your gifts. 
As Paul says in Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Here's another big one. Earlier today, we talked a little bit about our missionaries and those that we support overseas. Uh, Levittown Baptist Church supports many missionaries. I can tell you, because I was previously a missionary overseas, that it can feel like you don't have anyone fighting with you. It feels like you are on the front lines by yourself. And I can tell you how much encouragement you get from just one email or one letter or one postcard or one encouraging FaceTime call that you receive because those things remind you you are not fighting that battle alone. You have an entire army across the sea that is praying for you and serving alongside of you. You just can't see them at the moment. How often do you pray for our missionaries? How often do you read their newsletters? If you haven't signed up for them, I would love to help you find ways to do that. Each month, uh, our rope holding team is going to be providing us with information of prayer. Uh, next week, you can expect to see something out in the front where we're going to be praying for another group of missionaries for the next month and focus on them. But I encourage you, let's support and love and serve those that are on the front lines. Write them a letter. Write them an email. Show them that you are in battle with them. One area that we always need help right here at the church is with child care. You see, there are some problems that are good to have. One of the problems that is good to have is that we have so many kids. We have lots and lots of kids. Praise the Lord. That is good news. I cannot tell you how many times I have preached at churches where they will say, your kids are going to be the only ones in our church. They're going to be the only kids here today. Praise the Lord that we have a plethora, an abundance, an overflowing basement full of kiddos. Praise God. We always need help serving down there. There are some people that end up serving almost every week because we are limited in our capacity. I encourage you, if you are able to serve in that area, we have three different levels. We have the nursery, we have the littles, and we have the older kids. The two younger groups require very little teaching. They mainly require somebody who can be trustworthy just to hold them and to play games with them and to color with them. Those who are older, they do require teaching, but if you're afraid to teach children, let me tell you something. You can learn much faster than they can. Even if you're not ahead of them now, by next Sunday you can be. So you can work to study and be prepared to teach. If you are interested in serving alongside of our children's ministries, please talk to Francesco. He'll get you trained. He'll get you involved. If you want to serve in our welcome ministries, one of the great uh, challenges of this church is that we have so many people that walk in those doors and out those doors that just there's so many people going in and out at the same time. Visitors sometimes get overlooked. Brothers and sisters, this should not be so. If you want to be part of our welcome ministry team, please talk to Jonathan. He will help you get connected. He will help you serve so that you can likewise use your gifts of being friendly and welcoming and serving those who are coming. I encourage you, don't bury your talents. Don't forget them or act as if they're not valuable. Don't put them away for the end of your life. Use them for the kingdom by finding ways to serve and using your gifts right here today at LBC. Now, I was encouraged literally minutes before the service started today, I was told somebody in our church had asked to serve in the sound booth. Praise God, we had somebody who was like, hey, I want to be trained. I want to go through the hard work of figuring out all the technology. That encourages my heart. If you have a gift, let's serve. Church, I want you to know Christ is for us, and Christ has served us, and Christ is serving us. We should be for one another. I should be for you, and you should be for me. 
By way of encouragement, I want to tell you that although this may have sounded like an intense sermon so far, there are many people in the church who do serve well and who do serve faithfully. And if I were to list them all by name, it would take me the rest of the day and you would all be asleep by the time I concluded because there are some who give and give and give tirelessly to the body of Christ. And for you, I am so encouraged. For those of you who are engaged in the church, who are serving well, I encourage you to stay committed to the task. Be like Gad and Reuben at the end when they said, we'll go fight before everyone. We'll go be on the front lines. We will go take up the hard work so that everyone else gets their inheritance. Use your gifts. Go to bed tired. Repeat. Not for the sake of making the church into some kind of a well-oiled machine, but for the sake of worshiping our king who deserves our effort. And for the sake of edifying our brothers with whom... God has bonded us together, and for the sake of evangelizing the lost who will be reached as this church preaches the good news of the gospel. That is point number one, the sin of doing nothing. Point number two is the preserving power of rebuke. Now, as promised, this is going to be a shorter point, but but please never mistake brevity for insignificance. I don't think that rebuking is the main point of this text, but I do believe that, in part, this passage is here to show us that an appropriate word of rebuke that is received in humility can save the people of God from many sorrows. The people of Israel would, have, <clears throat> would be able to look back at this moment, and they would see what blessings there are in godly counsel. Moses, at this moment, said to these men, Do not do this sinful thing. He warned them of the many consequences. Their sin could have been devastating. It could mean 40 more years of wandering around in the wilderness. It could mean that all of you are going to die before receiving your inheritance. It could mean that your children are going to suffer for the majority of their lives before entering the promised land. But notice the effect that this rebuke has on their lives. It resulted in them being invigorated for the fight and committing For the rest of their brothers. The end of the story is not found here in chapter 32. In fact, it's not even found in the book of Numbers. The end of this story, the conclusion of what takes place here, is found at the end of Joshua, chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Listen to what it says there. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh, and he said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. And you have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days, down to this day. But you have been careful to keep the charge that you were given from the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore now turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave to you on the other side of the Jordan." That rebuke of Moses resulted in long-term obedience. That harsh word of Moses caused their hearts to be completely and radically changed so that they, instead of running from the fight, fought harder than anyone else. Perhaps today you need to learn from Moses. The New Testament commands us no less than eight times to rebuke those who are sinning. And three times it uses the term admonish one another. Jesus says in Luke 17, 3, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. It's a very simple formula. Now, I do not recommend that you rebuke as harshly as Moses did. Uh, Some commentators actually think that Moses himself was being sinful here by his vehemence 
Now, I don't think that he was sinning, but I do think that his relationship to the people of Israel was quite different than our relationship to one another. And so here, I encourage you to approach people like Moses did in the sense that if you see something, say something. Remind them of biblical history. Remind them that God disciplines those that he loves. Rebuke humbly and recognize that you too are a sinner in need of grace. Look, I'm not a confrontational person. I hate confrontation. But please know that sometimes there is biblically commanded confrontation of sin. Perhaps you are here today and you need to learn from the people of Gad and Reuben. It says, when they heard the rebuke, that they listened. Sometimes you are going to receive a rebuke. If you fall into sin and somebody points that out in your life, listen and be changed. If somebody is going to do the hard work of pointing out sin in your life, if they are going to cross that uncomfortable hurdle to acknowledge that there is something broken in your relationship with the Lord, they are probably right. Even if they're not, you should be humble and you should hear them out. There might be something there that you have been blind to for a long time. And if there is sin there, repent and call out to Christ for forgiveness. And like we see in these people from Gad and Reuben, be changed. Point number three today is the extreme nature of the gospel. There is a really, really important principle that we started out with today that Moses brings out in verse 23. He says, be sure your sin will find you out. Your sins will find you out. They will. They will find you out. Now, please know I say this with fear and trembling, but you need to know you cannot bury it. What you have done will be made known. David tried to bury his sin with Bathsheba. How did that go? Achan, famously in Joshua chapter 7, when they were told to destroy everything in the city, he went and he took for himself many things and he buried them beneath his tent. He literally tried to bury his sin. Be sure your sin will find you out, just as it did for David and Achan. Your sin will not find you out, actually, Let's think about that for a moment. Your, your, your sin can't find you out because your sin is not a person. Your sin is not a detective. Your sin is not something that can actually hunt you down like an animal. It can't hunt you and find you. So what is he saying? That's an anthropomorphism. It means that God will find you out. It means that God knows what you are doing. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered. Everything is laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Please understand, you and I, we are more sinful than we think we are. If you've ever been tempted to think that you've arrived and that you are without sin, consider just a few commands. Be holy as I am holy. You are more sinful than you think you are. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, meaning all of them. You are more sinful than you think you are. Love the Lord with your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. Brothers and sisters, we are more sinful than we think we are. This is the... It's important for us to understand that the vilest, the most vulgar, the most ungodly person that you know, you are more like that person than you are like Christ. The flavor of sin that you enjoy might be different than them, but you are just like them in terms of your need for forgiveness. You and I, we're great sinners, but there is someone who is really good at playing hide and seek. 
Your sin will find you out, but consider that Jesus said, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19.10. He knows exactly how sinful you are. He knows better than you know yourself. And yet, while you were still sinners, God sent Christ to die for the ungodly. Even though he knows, even though it is naked and laid bare before him, he removes it from memory. He chooses to remember it no more for those who have been forgiven. He sees your sin, and instead of accusing you, he takes it upon his own shoulders, and Jesus pays for it at the cross. If you are here and you're not a Christian, you need to know that you will find, you will be found out by your sin. God knows. God is not mocked. So turn to Christ and be saved from the wrath that is to come. And you need to know if you are a believer, the fact that your sin will find you out should not cause you fear because your Savior has found you and he has taken away your sin, but it should cause you to, to seek to love him and serve him and run from that sin. The Father will never hold your sin against you because to do so would be to say, to Jesus, your death wasn't good enough for that sin. Christ is for you. Even though he knows your sin far better than you do, he is for you. So be humbled and be amazed at the extremity of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we have a good God who loves sinners. And even though your sin will find you out, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, God has found you. He has sent Christ to pursue you. He has sought you out and he has bought you with his blood. So brothers and sisters, we have good news in this. Let's pray. Father God, I do ask that in all of these things, your name would be lifted high. Lord, I pray for anyone today who is involved with the sin of doing nothing. Lord, that you would encourage their heart to serve. And Lord, I pray that if there is anyone who is currently not walking with Christ at all, that you would save them by the grace of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I do pray that in all of these things, our hearts would not just be motivated to do and to act and to be and to operate in terms of externalities, but that our service would grow out of a heart of love for God, that in loving we would serve, in delighting in Christ we would indeed give our lives for him as he has given his life for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.